Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then, buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and, of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. All right, everybody. Well, we're here. We are once yeah, again for the hundred and fifty second time, Lanny. We, you've got us in here one hundred and fifty two times. It, it, Actually, I think it's one hundred and fifty three because we did that one podcast that we never sent out. So, just, oh, just for the record, yeah, that one in the archives. <laughs> it's a it's a one hundred fifty two times. I yeah, mean, you great. couldn't even spell, spell podcast when you started this thing. No, we you were like, what? Was, we're yeah. still learning. Here yeah, we are. Yeah, so he still can't. He can't spell that. No, that's true. I mm. forgot. Good well, thing you're talking. No. Well, welcome everybody to West Point, Mississippi. Uh, we're here in the Gamekeeper Studio, and we've got a really interesting guest. Today. Yeah, we do. I mean, what, you, you can't go a meal here without a without hot sauce. I mean, we're we're in the South. We love hot sauce. It's just the bottom line. So we're super excited about our guest this week, and and not just, just any hot sauce. I just had a little on my. The, the hot sauce. The yeah. hot sauce. Yeah, that's, that's, right. that's right. So before we get to our guest, I wanted to remind everybody the spring issue of the Gamekeepers magazine. Ooh, it's um, a good looking cover there, Bobby. It, it's a great looking cover. It's the same image as, as uh, the turkey stamp. The, the turkey, turkey stamp. stamp. It's exactly out right. now. And so there's a, still a few of these magazines mm-hmm. left. You guys can go on our webpage, and if you just want to buy one and have it with the stamp, that. you know, <laughs> you can do that as well. And so, if you subscribe, you're going to get that issue anyway. So it's a yeah. necessary bonus issue that yeah, you get. That, so pick it up. Beautiful. You. That is actually the original painting on Daddy's Den over the mantle in Daddy's Den that's on the cover. That's right. Really and that cool. was stamped this year. And so that's painting, the first. Uh, original painting from uh, Bob Tompkins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's and and beautiful. I pr- that's the best looking cover we've done. And it's the first one we hadn't done that's a photograph. That's exactly that's right. It's the first yeah. one that's ever been on show. Yeah. And sure uh, please go to the website and buy the stamp. Oh, yeah. No doubt about it. Uh, yep. Every penny is every, out. Every penny goes to Gamekeeper Grants Conservation. Yep. Wild Turkey Research. That's right. It's such a great cause. So, uh, looking at Dudley, we took off all last week so that you could go turkey hunting and yeah. maybe have a chance to kill a turkey. How'd that go for you? Uh, Update us there. Yeah. How's, you know, how's the plight? Uh, Toxie was talking about uh, my comment about how birds are connected to the heavens. Yeah. And I think that's why I hadn't killed a turkey this year because there's just some reason that I'll never understand. Huh. Why I can't? You don't think it's that uh, mouth call that sounds like a tree frog? No, <laughs> it might be, but that tree frog noise has called in a lot of turkeys in the past. So uh, maybe okay. they're getting smarter. Maybe they are. That's well, possible. do you have any forecast in the future here? What, what's it? What's You're not it giving like up, are you? Are you giving no. up? No, I'm not giving no. up. Okay, good. No, I'm no. Off- never. You never I, know who will take it on as a personal project. But I tell you what, you 
just like many of my other almost fruitless turkey seasons, uh, I'm having a blast. So. Yes. That's the great thing about turkey. Right. I have fun every time I go. Yeah. You right. know, one there was one year that I struggled. I'm not really doing mightily, it. And somebody struggled. took it on my on their sales. You, were, you had a savior that year. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And, uh, and it, now he's the voice of the opening of the podcast. He sure is. Yeah. And what a turkey guy he yeah, is. Yeah, I mean it. Yeah. Yeah, to call Jeff in, Foxworthy. Yeah. I else. still remember the year that um, Landy was having a terrible tough year, and Bobby was rolling. And so me, Bobby, oh, yeah. and I took Lanny to one of my favorite places. I oh, have, I, I the remember this place. <laughs> and we finally heard kind of a group of two year olds, the yeah. perfect suspects, late in the season. <clears throat> I'll never forget it. And we got up, weighted water way higher than our rubber boots, yeah. and got over got there. Got in there. Got. Lanny in the pole position. Bobby's kind of right by him calling the stuff too. And next thing they roll up there and Lanny can't get a good shot. And next thing I know that one on peels out to the right, I can just see it from behind calling. Boom. Bobby shoots one of them. Another one. <laughs> and he's sitting there with his foot on the turkey's neck. And Lanny comes up kind of like. You shot. No, Bobby. No, yeah. he just like, what, Bobby? And I said, do, do you feel bad? And Bobby he said, no, not at all. <laughs> no. I'll never forget it. Well, no. don't worry. He's done it a bunch of times. Yeah, yeah. it's like Still a game between y'all. Yes. Still don't feel bad. I think I shot the last one, though, out from under front Oh, of clearly. Yeah. yeah cl- you, look, you don't want to get in a leapfrog thing with him now, Toxic, because yeah. he's figured it out. Oh, yeah. It's like, nope. No, no. He, what Bobby does is he tries to act like he's cordial. Here, you sit wherever you want to. You know, you sit here. You sit here. But you need to let him sit down first. Look, we are all our most strategic in the springtime <laughs> that's just the way the culture is yeah it is it sure is fun though, well let's keep this thing moving yeah. so uh blood on the biologics brought to you by ls tractor we are deep in the season here in the south i spent a little time on ls tractor this weekend and i, I was like therapy yeah i enjoyed it you ought to see his tractor experience he's he Bobby came in looked like he'd been on morning. opioids or something he was so addicted yeah, to it. Yeah. i enjoyed it yeah. i really did lanny's been digging holes at the nursery how many did you have to dig before you found the right spot well i, I was hoping to dig one and i and i only dug three so okay, that's not good. too bad yeah one yeah. out of three is not bad that's not too bad so as far as youngins killing turkeys i got a i mean we, a long could, yeah, we could go on for a while but uh jada clark hmm. uh with with her first turkey johnny rutherford who used to work here. oh yeah. yeah you know he's got a son named jimbo yeah johnny. His first turkey what's up johnny camille stewart brick stewart's daughter oh, awesome yeah, yeah. grant Hargis. I know I'm on I hope I didn't mispronounce that. Nine years old with a four ten killed his first one. Nice. Heck yeah. Hooray. Yeah. Love seeing those kids kill the first one. That's awesome. So um, the, the good thing for about the kids, I've got a ninety two and a half year old kid. That's right. That I think if he's doing okay this afternoon, may have a chance to go in the morning. Uh, I am awesome. So y'all cross your fingers. Shoot. That's I'm going to awesome. hit my knees. Yeah, we'll pray on that one. Yeah, we're going to say a prayer. It's going to take some doing, but man, we're going to try our oh best man. next two days. Mm. Mm. I'm excited. Yeah, please keep us posted. I will. Yeah, I will. Yeah. Lanny, you got anybody you want to yeah, add to that? Yeah, or? yeah. Uh, my little buddy, Hayden. Yep, he's got on the board. So finally, he I have. he's not near as sour as he was, you know, before about me shooting that bird out from under him. I don't yeah. know what it is. So, <laughs> And then uh, my first cousin, Steve Austin Ballard, uh, he uh, had a, a young girl. He Stone took Cold? No, just Steve. Uh, uh, took a young girl. He, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, took uh, one of his friend's young girl named Sophie Adams, and she killed her first with him. He had on Fox Vest number 1356. Uh, and then later that week, uh, Sophie's father and him actually doubled up. So, uh, 
Shout out to them in Tennessee. Tennessee's been good. You looked at Kerry Wicks's page. No, I don't even look at. I it mean, Kerry. I mean, give us. Hey, don't come back to Alabama, Kerry. <laughs> Until we get to come to Tennessee, some of these states have delayed their opening in the, what they believe is yeah. the best interest of the birds. And I know it's controversial, but if it is in the best interest of the birds, then I applaud them. Yeah, and I will say. Two that come to mind are Tennessee and then famously Alabama pushed it back 10 days and then even outlawed the decoy the first 10 days after that. And I will say everybody that I know, it starts out with a A bang. bang. Alabama opener was incredible. And Mm -hmm. so was Tennessee's evidently. Evidently Mm -hmm. so. So, I mean, yeah, maybe. And they've given them days on the back of that, I hope. Because I I do like just permission to still go, even if they're not gobbling much at all or whatever. It's just – hanging on to one last day to go sit out in the woods. Yeah. But so far, so good we'll see how these hatches That's great. do in the future. The bottom line is results. So yeah. And yeah. I'll tell you what, I've been driving around a lot and I am seeing where people are burning in areas where I've never seen burned before. Oh my neighbor burned so, last week. Oh I forgot. So I'm Tom. I'm really excited to see this mosaic of of fire in more places than in the past. So David Hawley sent me the Alabama forestry publishes a map every day of all the burn permits. And there it has a little flame coming up and you see a map of the state mm-hmm. and you can click in where they are and the, 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 the number permit number and stuff. But I want to say there was like 280 something in one day. Yeah. In one day. Set it yeah. on fire. Mm-hmm. It may have been more than that, but it's the little flames were like over just about the, you, know, you can tell where the, farmland is if they don't but it was just about the whole state so and it's definitely catching on there's no question it's catching on so i like that but (laughs) yeah excuse the pun but somebody at the forestry commission has got to have a stressful lifestyle now smoke everywhere they're gonna have to bring the fire towers back (laughs) well it's not it's not it's the the planes flying them and checking them that's true that's true but i did uh my brother-in-law came by here early this week and he stumbled upon a hen with a clutch of 12 eggs and then got out of there real quick. So how did he know she had 12 eggs? He counted them. He should not have done that. Well, well, I mean, it was, he was above them. I recommend he flipped his finger in there. He said about 12. Okay. You're being awful critical. Well, nope. You don't need to touch them. I I didn't say, I don't care if he's related to you. You don't need to put them down. When you see a a nest, whenever you're standing, I mean, maybe you're already standing right on it before you discovered it. What, but whenever you discover it, run away, immediately go backwards. Yeah. yeah. Do not take another single step towards yeah. it. And that's you. what he did. Yeah. yeah. Good. I'm glad to hear so that. So Mike <laughs> Chamber, uh, <laughs> our friend, Dr. Mike, uh, posted, he'll be here this week, just the other day, what to do if you encounter a nest. So check per- out his perfect. Post. Perfect. Yeah. There you go. He would be the man to tell that us. That was his Turkey Tuesday, wasn't it? It yeah. was. So it was yesterday. Yep. Yesterday. Look at that. So, um, can I have my turn, please? Oh, no, you're not going right, to get to talk this get to our guest. Here. So, uh, one of our favorite podcast listeners, Michael Cates, uh, he's oh. sending me stuff all the time about progress. Both he and his son, if I read this correctly, got their first turkey this year. Nice. So, congrats to you guys. Um, another listener, Corey Ballou, his son, Walker, Actually got his third bird, but Walker said, Dad, I want to I want to shoot this one just like you do with my back against a tree. And so he thought, you know, Walker thought that was a, a good milestone, you know, a good yeah, good way to do it. And so he got one just like his dad does, hmm. with sitting up against a tree. And then uh, one of my best friends and, and favorite hunting buddies, Martin Tino Quick, 
What his, a name. His son, well, Tino is his nickname. Okay. Uh, his son, Leo, <laughs> got his first and second gobbler this year. Tino and Leo. Man. Yeah. yeah. On so. fire. That's a well, good Well, congratulations. Yeah. yeah. I love yeah, that, seeing awesome. these young people out there in the woods. That's really good. It is. It's a, there's a lot of excitement around turkeys right now. So Yeah. Speaking of excitement. We got a guest over here who looks like he's just. Uh, I think we have bored him to death. Yeah, we could have. <laughs> <laughs> we are so sorry. Our guest is the historian of the famous brand Tabasco. Right here. Yeah, it, that's right. That we all utilize every day. And he, I mean, this guy, literally, his title is historianist, Dr. Shane Bernard. Boom. We probably, as a company at Mossy Oak, we probably have more people on the first team All-American Tabasco team. No than doubt anybody, about it. Anybody in America. I even kid my brother-in-law, Bill. Uh, he, I was like, do you put it on your ice cream? I mean, he puts <laughs> it on everything. He loves it. He everything. Love it. It's great stuff. Just it had is. it on a roast beef sandwich mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. Well, Shane, we're excited to have you here with us. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And we apologize you had to endure that uh, – that, Trick, that, that little opening, bit opening but that's just kind of our normal <laughs> normal way. That of was the key key cackle fly down. Yeah. <laughs> so, how does a guy get to be the historian for the Tabasco brand? I was in the right place at the right time. I had just graduated with a, a master's in history from the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. I took a couple of months off to to look well to relax before I looked for my first career oriented job and uh i went to a job fair on campus on campus didn't really hear anything that really was of interest to me but i went across the street to visit one of my old professors and as soon as he saw me he says i think i have a job for you it's only a three to six month gig but it's with the McElhenney people who make tabasco sauce down at avery island and you know this is in Lafayette, Louisiana, that this discussion is taking place. It's where I grew up. Um, I had only been to Avery Island, though, like maybe once or twice in my lifetime, even though it was right down the road. I was a Tabasco user, so uh, it, it was fitting that I would end up coming to work here because I used a lot of it. But um, my professor and I took a drive down here. I interviewed for the job. I never said a single thing during the meeting. My professor spoke for me. And uh, I remember they they uh, they said, "Well, you're you're hired," you know. And uh, again, I was only supposed to be there at most three to six months, and I've been here thirty years as wow. of last month. It would, uh, that sounds what, like my career. <laughs> it yeah, does, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. I mean, couldn't get rid of you yeah. for some reason. <laughs> hey, this is Bobby Cole. One of my favorite things to do as a gamekeeper is planting food plots for my deer. My Onyx app helps me to determine the exact plot size to make sure I'm applying the right rate of biologic seed and fertilizer. Try it out for yourself and see. Use coupon code MOSSYOAK to save 20% on your subscription to Onyx. It's not every day that you realize that a company has a historian because I don't know that I've ever seen that before. Well, it's a, just there a, are others out there, uh, you know, like Disney has one and um, Patagonia has, sure one. Who's has one. Yeah, uh, I, I, I hear like, you know, Harley Davidson has one. Most of these what they call are iconic brands. Most of them have one, um, although we're usually, you know, working in the background. And um, 
we're a small company compared to a lot of those other companies that have company historians. It only takes something like 250 people worldwide to, to make the world supply of Tabasco sauce, because unlike with, say, Coca-Cola or Pepsi, you know, you don't consume a whole bottle at, at one sitting. Hmm. Um, it's possible, but it Bail really <laughs> and, yeah. and so, uh, so we're a small company with a very big brand and a, and a very well-known logo and trademark. And, uh, and sometimes it seems like working for a celebrity almost, except the celebrity is the brand. Because you, you've got people uh, tattooing this on their arms and legs, you know? Yeah, no, that's absolutely. I mean, I um, I was on a flight overseas, and we had Tabasco. Uh, I think it was Air France, and uh, but anyway, you guys, uh, I think you're in 195 countries now. Yeah, we're in 195 countries and territories, and a- according to the UN, there are only 195 countries in the world to begin with. So. That's almost everyone except maybe, you know, North Korea. Uh, and, I'm sure he's got some. Uh, I, bet they got I bet they got it, too. Where, wherever else there's fighting going on right now, we're probably not there. But uh, we're in territories like uh, like Guam, for example, which, you know, is a U.S. territory and happens to be, on a per capita basis, the largest consumer of Tabasco sauce in the world. Wow. Um, our biggest customers... Uh, outside the U.S. are Japan and Germany. So, what are what are the characteristics that those three places—Guam, Germany, and Japan—have in common? Is historically a large U.S. military presence, and so our theory is that the U.S. military introduced the sauce to the locals, who embraced it, and that explains why we're so popular in those three places. And hmm. not, I think, not uh, uh, uncoincidentally. Uh, Guam is also the largest per capita user of spam in the world, which Very spurred, interesting. spurred us to get together with Hormel, and they actually released a um, a spam flavored with Tabasco. That's hmm. brilliant. That I got to go try some of that. Hmm. Well, look what I've got. You know the the Tabasco uh, the the sauce aspect of this conversation is interesting, and we all use it uh, every morning. I put some on my eggs, at Dudley. I think you you use it regularly. And oh yeah, what's and your the, favorite thing? Is it favorite eggs? Your favorite? Yeah, thing? probably it's probably eggs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think your catfish, aren't uh, you? Yeah, fried catfish. Yeah, Dudley drinks his in yeah, a he's bloody puts it Mary in the coffee every morning. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> 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 gumbo. Yeah, if I could, I think would. You, gumbo. Yeah, gumbo. That's Oysters. My one, I mean, oysters are great. Everything, just about. But I, look, I, I draw the line on ice cream. I hope your your folks aren't offended with that. But <laughs> other than that, pretty much everything's good. We actually, we actually have Tabasco flavored ice cream for the coming. tourists who come here to yeah. the island. Yeah, well, we'll have to swing in and get a scoop. I, I bet if we tasted it, it was good too. Yeah, I bet it is. So, but Shane, what I wanted to kind of kind of uh, talk with you about is Avery Island in the history of Avery Island. It's got a, a in the McElhenney family, there's a, a history of conservation. In the late 1800s, uh, it was fashionable to take the long, wispy white feathers from that, uh, that species, the snowy egret, and, uh, and put them in uh, women's hats and adorn other pieces of clothing with it. And it was so popular that the... The species was almost wiped out. Wow. And E.A. McElhenney, Edward Avery McElhenney, who was the son 
of Edmund McElhenney, the man who invented Tabasco sauce, was sort of a self-taught naturalist because because Edmund, his father was a was a naturalist and really sort of a self-taught scientist in general. He loved uh, geology, he loved astronomy, he loved anything having to do with with nature, and uh, and EA of his four sons, EA was the one most like his father, and so he noticed that there were fewer and fewer of these egrets to be seen and he he could figure out why so what he did was he he found uh six or eight uh of these uh juvenile snowy egrets brought them back to Avery Island and put them into what he called uh, a flying cage which would be called an, an aviary now and just kept them there for several months and fed them this was uh, summer 1895, as best I could tell. And in the fall, he opened the cage or just took the cage away completely. And uh, when they felt the urge to migrate, they left. And he was hoping that the next year they would come back just instinctively and bring other, e other egrets with them. And that's exactly what happened. So that by, I think it's 1910, 1911, he estimated there was something like 100,000 egrets uh, coming to the island. Uh, and at the same time he did this, he helped to push through federal legislation. Uh, I think it was the Lacey Act um, that uh, outlawed the uh, interstate trade of feathers, of, of bird feathers. Uh, he also made a film in 1913 called The Snowy Egret and ex extermination with the Pate Frere newsreel company, which was a French owned company. And it's a 13, it's an eight minute silent film with, uh, with captions uh, in between the scenes. And uh, he actually showed that at uh, museums around the country. He would rent out movie theaters and show it. He even showed it uh, on Capitol Hill in Washington to uh, to win over votes to outlaw the uh, interstate trade of, of feathers. And, uh, and, and so he and other bird enthusiasts like himself, other naturalists, um, were successful in saving this species from, from being wiped out by, that, uh, by those plume hunters, as they, were, as they were called. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, we're so used to seeing, you know, violence on TV at, at, in primetime tonight or in the news that that film really shocked people when it came out. Um, I know that because of the newspaper articles that it, it, it triggered um, uh, just seeing these hunters uh, shoot the egrets and then, and then just tear the feathers out while the animals were still alive and then throw the rest of the bird away because they didn't want the meat uh, mm. really shocked people. And of course, then you have the problem of, you know, they're here for nesting season in Louisiana. So that leaves a nest full of hatchlings uh, with no parents to feed them. Uh, and so they die of starvation. So, but the interesting thing is that as EA was not just a conservationist, he was also a hunter. So he was a hunter conservationist, very much in the Theodore Roosevelt mm -hmm. mold. Well, you know, and, and what he was able to prove there is that one man can make a difference. Theodore Roosevelt, in uh, an article that he wrote for um, an outdoors magazine, um, 
called EA's rookery here on the island, which which was called Bird City, as it still is. He called it the the uh, the most important refuge in the country, the most noteworthy refuge in the country. And I, he unfortunately doesn't say why he thinks that, but I think Roosevelt thought that because it was entirely a private endeavor. It wasn't it wasn't a government initiative or anything. Just this one person thought it up and did it. As I've learned more about this guy, it looks like y'all have had bird bannings from all over the, I'm going to say the world. You know, a lot of people didn't know uh, 125 years ago, where do these birds go when they migrate? They just disappear for half the year. Where do they go? Do they go north? Do they go south? So EA was part of this effort to ban birds and then track where they end up. So and this wasn't, you know, there's no GPS back then. What you had to do was uh, rely on hunters to, when they captured these these animals, to uh, to mail those those tags back to the address, or at least send a letter saying, "I found this at such and such a place." So uh, EA uh, banded almost 300,000 birds of wow. all sorts of species during his lifetime. And uh, we actually have a few boxes of the unused um, bands here, you know, little metal bands that you put on with a pair of pliers. But we've also got film of him banding the birds because in 1939, uh, Field and Stream magazine came here and uh, filmed him. It was called it's a film called Sky Game. I've also heard it called Doug, uh, Ducks, Dogs and Decoys. Uh, and I actually managed to find a copy of it on ebay because uh, phil and stream didn't have a copy i couldn't find it any kind of film library in in los angeles or anything or new york uh lo and behold here's a reel for sale on ebay had it digitized and um it has sound unfortunately we don't hear ea's voice but it's it's narrated and it's it's partly about duck hunting here off the island just just literally right off the island there are two ponds called the upper and lower shooting ponds um, where EA would, would duck hunt. He had blinds out there, but also shows him at, at work as a conservationist. And so he's, he's banding some of these ducks and then letting them, letting them go. See, where do they go when they migrate? Incidentally, if you see this film, and I, I do have it on, um, on YouTube, um, he is dressed in, in a formal attire to hunt. Uh, which a lot of people find interesting. And he has his, his assistant uh, with him, a, a young lady helping him ban these birds. And she's also dressed. They look like they're in their Sunday best. And when he goes out to the duck blind, he and the other hunters with them are wearing, uh, you know, kind of coats and ties. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the way they used to do it, I guess, or at least some people. Well, I think it, go, it, I think it shows respect is, uh, is what, kind of what I take away from that is uh, respect for the sport, respect for the birds. Yeah, that's interesting how folks used to dress up like that to, to go hunting. You know, Dudley, I know it's more is, formal. You know? I know you've got some questions. Well, I mean, I, I know that uh, other people want us to ask this question. We all are big fans of the wild turkey. Uh, so can you – discuss uh some of the charles jordan or is it jordan yeah uh and the book and uh you know their relationship well jordan jordan was killed by some poachers and so murdered so good grief uh, he left this he left this unfinished manuscript which ea purchased 
from Jordan's widow and finished it himself. So looking at the spine of the book, you would think that EA was the only author because it just says McElhenney on the side. The, the Wild Turkey and its Hunting is the book. But in the intro, he tells you that, look, this is this is uh, Jordan's uh, manuscript. I'm merely finishing it up, supplying the photographs for it and that sort of thing. Uh, because EA was very big into turkey hunting. And I, as I said, I've been here on the island 30 years. I've only seen one turkey, uh, which oddly enough seemed to fall out of a tree right in front of my car. I did not run over it. <laughs> got away safe. But I've only seen one turkey on the island, but they are here. Jane, you need to get out more. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Drive around randomly on the island until I see a turkey. Yeah. So we'll I mean, see. we got bears too. We, we got black bear here. I've, I've seen them. Uh, it, I haven't seen them in about five years, but about five years ago, I saw about eight, uh, one autumn, which is when they seemed to come out, uh, coyotes, uh, bobcats, there's plenty of snakes, plenty of alligators, just, uh, uh, nutria. There's a story behind that muskrat, uh, just, just all sorts of species. Yeah. I forgot about the nutria story. You, uh, do you want to? Do you want to chime in on that? Yeah. So, you know, when I came to work here, there was this well-known and often repeated story, which is turns out is only partly true, that E.A. McElhaney, e. McElhaney uh, the same guy who set up Bird City, had single-handedly introduced the Nutria rat uh, to Louisiana and sometimes you hear to North America in general. But I eventually became the caretaker of his papers which he filed meticulously. In fact, that's what's in these file cabinets right behind me is the E.A. McElhenney collection. Wow. Hmm. Starts, starts around 1900 and goes until well after he died in 1949 because his estate kept producing papers long after he passed away. And um, so what I found was that his Nutria papers were uh, separated into their own folders and if it was folder 18 in 1938, it was folder 18 in 1942 and so on. So I, I got them out and started looking at them. And I could see there was a story here that did not match what was often repeated verbally or in the media, which was this sort of myth uh, about EA importing them from Argentina. And they escaped accidentally during a hurricane. And that's sort of where all the nutria came from and you know now they're a nuisance animal and the state of louisiana will will give you x number of dollars per tail just as proof that you killed one because you're you're actually helping the environment you know the nutria chew up the salt marsh and then the the what they do is they eat the root system and then the marsh dies and sinks and they burrow through levees in metro new orleans mm -hmm. so they're a real nuisance alien species but what i found using his own papers is that he was at least the third nutria farmer in Louisiana, at least the second whose nutria got into the wild. And, and rather than them escape accidentally during a hurricane, I found that he let them go on purpose because I found this, you know, most elusive thing for a historian, a smoking gun document. He wrote a memo to himself. This was in summer of 1942 saying today, I set loose 21 nutria off the island, 14 females and seven males to, to help the fur trade uh, hmm. because fur trapping was a very big industry in this region um, you know, into the 1970s. 
And so uh, I've actually had a, a, you know, a couple of people say, well, you know, uh, you, you just wanted to absolve the McElhenney's of any responsibility. And it's like, well, why, why would I show them that he let them go on purpose uh, rather than have them get out accidentally, you know? So, uh, but it, it is an interesting story. And uh, I, I first published it in the State History Journal. It's since been published in, uh, in a magazine. Um, and so, uh, and the interesting thing is that the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, which was not called that at the time, I forget what it was called, Department of Conservation, I think, um, they were actually encouraging people to raise nutria in Louisiana because no one, no one realized at the time that, uh, gee, they, they breed so quickly, uh, that it can quickly get out of control. Sure. Wow. They can, they can definitely do that. They, yes. Now, now uh, a corollary of that is that sometimes people say, Oh, didn't the McElhinney's also introduce the water hyacinth to Louisiana? It's like, no, that was not them <laughs> because that's something else that's gotten out of control. No, that's a completely different story. Yeah. I think a lot of these non-native species get released with good intentions. And in fact, uh, you know, a lot of them have been by the USDA and such, mm-hmm. you know, they, they breed these plants to, uh, that might you know they think it's good for wildlife and it you know it ends up being a, a bad idea but oftentimes it's with good intentions so you you can't always fault no for making those decisions lanny you look like you got a question <clears throat> yeah i'm just looking you know uh, on a map at every island and it's completely intriguing because it's like this oasis in the middle of the marsh so i didn't know if you could speak to and i see a lot of canals and stuff around it was it just a natural high ground in that marsh or was there, did they, you know, manipulate the land in order to make it that way? It's a natural high ground. So I often explain to uh, guests here on the island that the island is not an island in the traditional sense. It's not surrounded by an open body of water. Uh, it's not off the coast of Louisiana, although it is three miles from open water from Vermilion Bay, which mm-hmm. in turn opens onto the Gulf of Mexico. What it is, is a salt dome. Uh, there's a huge column of salt beneath the earth that has floated up toward the surface and pushed up the alluvial soil, laid down, you know, eons ago by the Mississippi or some other rivers that have flown through here. Because both the Mississippi and Red Rivers have flown right through this area thousands of years ago before they shifted east. And wow. um, and, and then pushed, so the column, which, which is buoyant, pushed up all the topsoil into this range of rolling hills and valleys that is Avery Island. It's about 2,200 acres in size, uh, two and a half miles across at its widest point, 165 feet above sea level at its highest point. And um, for anyone from, you know, South Louisiana, you, you, really, you know that that's really weird because mm-hmm. it's so flat down here. But, you know, my mom's from around Magnolia, Mississippi, I should say. So... You know, there's a lot of rolling hills around there. If you go in the woods around there, it's very hilly. And uh, and so it feels like that when you're on Avery Island. It's almost like a little piece of <laughs> southwest Mississippi broke off and ended up in, in otherwise completely flat coastal south Louisiana. There's a lot of old growth forest here on, on the island, too. Wow. And so, um, yeah, it's an island in that sense that it's surrounded by wetlands. When you look at an aerial photograph of the island, what you're mostly seeing off the island is grassy salt marsh Mm -hmm. but if you look very closely on the east side of the island there's a very thin dark strip 
of, of, of bald cypress or red cypress. Um, and to the, just to the northeast of the island is a large patch of cypress. Uh, that was all commercially harvested uh, in the early 1900s, but not completely. That's why it, uh, there's still uh, cypress there today. Then on almost every side of the island, you have you have bayous, and uh, you know just our word for a slow-moving muddy river. I know you have bayous in in Mississippi, um, so uh, you've got uh, the large bayou on the west side of the island is called Bayou Petitance, which means little cove in Louisiana French. There's Stumpy Bayou, Bayou Lulu, Banana Bayou, which was really called uh, Bonab Bayou, but somehow it morphed into banana. Uh, saline bayou near the salt mine on the island and so yeah it, it is an island in that sense uh, that it's surrounded by wetlands and until the 1850s the only way to get here uh or at least to once you got to the edge of the dry land about a mile north from here was to take a boat through a canal or bayou but in the 1850s irish immigrant workers uh, built a uh, built a uh, causeway to the island, which is still the causeway crossed today by busloads of tourists or whomever coming here every day. Hmm. Interesting stuff. So, really? Yeah. Um, so, so one the, more, sorry, Doug. So you said it's 165 feet above sea level at its highest point. Its highest point. Yeah. Hmm. There's actually a U.S. Geological Survey marker up there. And uh, I still don't qu- know quite how they did it in the 1930s, but they were they were very close to you know the reading you get with like a really good GPS device, you know, which also says it's roughly 165 feet above sea level. And since sea level is almost what you have when you're off the island, it, it's a pretty dramatic I bet it uh, is. Pan- panorama from up there. Even though you know it's hardly the Rocky Mountains, right? But it's it's the nearest. Might as thing well be down there in the fact, bayou. <laughs> Well, it's said to be the highest point on the island between Florida and the Mexican border, including the state of Florida. Huh. That's interesting. That really and is. It, it's got to be, you know, it's like its own unique ecosystem. Yeah, it's you like think. a. It is, yeah. Because so there are even plants and trees that grow here that don't grow on flat ground, but they, they grow on uh, in hilly areas, but they're found here on the island. They're not found elsewhere in South Louisiana, and we guess they got here. You know, the seeds blew here in the wind or birds brought them here and and they just took because it's it is its own little ecosystem. In fact, the white tailed deer here on the island are their own subspecies. Hmm. Yeah, well we're we're gonna ask you about yeah, that we in were a minute, gonna, but let's yeah, save that one for that. just a little bit the later. The salt, so you know, I I like to fish. Uh, I think we all do, but oh yeah. Occasionally we go offshore out of Venice and there's a salt dome. Mm-hmm. Uh, called the Lump. It's yeah. like a famous area, but I I had no idea there was an inland I didn't salt dome that is, is what Avery Island is. That's really cool. That is cool. So do you guys, uh, I assume you harvest your own salt for the- We uh, did from the, from the Civil War era until two Decembers ago when we stopped. And uh, the, the mine had got down to the 1,820 feet uh, sorry. Yeah, 1,820 feet is how deep it got. So almost 2,000 feet deep. It was getting to the point where it was no longer economical to get the salt to the surface. It just was taking more and more money to mine the salt the deeper you go. So they knew 
that the the mine uh, the the mining was coming to an end anyway, and so they closed it about two yeah two December's ago they stopped and they they flooded it with water from the Gulf um, this past summer, um, and then they capped it off. And the reason they flooded it with water is because they knew if they filled the salt mine with with salty water, the water would not dissolve any more salt, and it would it would keep it intact. There would be no no danger of uh, cave-ins or subsidence or sinkholes or anything like that once they filled it back filled it up with with water. Interesting. Stuff. Yeah, you know that took some engineering. I oh, yeah. think that that think. That oh thing. yes, a lot. So I'd, I'd like for you to go back. Uh, Toxie will be next with his questions. If he's, he's looks like he's working on something intently over there. But I, I want to ask you this book. The the guy's name was Jordan. He was killed by poachers, you mentioned. Do you know that story? Is That's that right. Something That's you right. Could, can you share that story with us? I, I don't know the details. Um, I just know that, you know, he was he was active as a conservationist and a hunter. He went out on his property or, or, or some property that he was uh, uh, patrolling, and he caught some poachers, and, and they, they killed him. Yeah. Mm. Um, I rem- that was one of my favorite turkey hunting books uh, that I used to own. Of course, that was in that suite of books that I left at the oil change place. But uh, <laughs> I remember reading Charles Jordan's description of how to make a uh, – uh, how to make a turkey call out of, of joints of river cane, just like a wingbone call. And so I made a bunch of them and, and played around with it and had a good time. But uh, that's a fascinating book if, if any of the listeners hadn't read that. And I highly suggest it. One of the really fascinating books we have in our, our library here is a first edition copy of J.J. Uh, Pringle's book about hunting uh, snipe here in South Louisiana. And uh, I think snipe is often uh, used as like uh, the name of a pretend animal, but it actually sure. is a real, oh, real yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I know um, Edmund McElhaney, the guy who invented Tabasco, was really fond of, of Papa Bot. Uh, and that may just be the local French name. Uh, I don't remember if that's the same as, as snipe or not. But anyway, they're, they're both, you know, uh, wildfowl, but, but relatively small. So we have this first edition copy of J.J. Pringle's book. And, and what it is is a diary. It's his hunting diary that he published. And it's all about hunting down near Sippermore uh, Point and the Bayou Sally area. Uh, which is right next door in St. Mary Parish, Louisiana. This was a wealthy northerner who, after the Civil War, bought some land in South Louisiana just so he could hunt on it. And then he published his his hunting diary, and it became a valuable keepsake for other hunters, and usually in the form of a reproduction. They have some very high-quality reproductions. Like, it comes in a, in a slip case and everything. We actually have the real thing. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Wow, it is. Now, see the the whole concept of the island and how long ago that was kind of founded, so to speak. The 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 correct me if I'm wrong, but the Tabasco brand started in the mid 1860s. It was it was in 1868. So so three years after the end of the Civil War, and it, it was because of the Civil War. I, I mean, as a historian, I'm 
really not supposed to speculate too much about what might have happened otherwise, but it's pretty clear that Edmund McElhenney would have remained living in Metro New Orleans and working as a banker um, if it were not for the Civil War. Uh, you know, three of his five branch banks were in towns wholly or partly torched during the Civil War. No one had money to pay back their loans to his banks. Uh, legally, they didn't even have to because there was this quirk of law at the time saying uh, if there was an act of God and it prevented you from paying back a loan, you didn't. You never had to pay it back again. And Civil War counted as an act of God. So people didn't even have to pay back their loans to him. And so he was practically bankrupt. And, you know, he's in his mid-50s. Um, he's just starting a new family at that late time in his life. His his uh, He and his wife had had their first child in 1861. They'd eventually have six children. And he's... He's left relying on his in-laws, the Averys, who actually owned Avery Island, uh, and for whom it was eventually named. At the time, it was called Il Petitance, Petitance Island. Um, he was relying on them for the, the welfare uh, of, 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 his, of his new family, and he didn't like that. He was sort of a very proud guy with sort of a puritanical work ethic, believed in waking up before dawn and going to work and going to bed early and that sort of thing. A lot of self-education. He believed in that, constant self-education. And so, well, now what's he going to do? So he comes up with this really weird idea when you think about it. Why don't I make a pepper sauce and sell it? Here's a guy who had no experience as a food manufacturer, no experience as a planter. And you, you had to know about those things to make Tabasco sauce. Um, and and so he did. He he went out on a limb. He didn't know he was going to be a success like like we do and and he did it and unfortunately i don't ever think he really realized what he had done because at the time of his death his value and the value of the tabasco factory on the island all the salt and pepper mash and vinegar that was on hand and and the value of the the logo that's so valuable to us today was was uh estimated to be worth uh, fourteen thousand dollars in in eighteen ninety, uh, money, hmm. um, and and so he had been worth one hundred twelve thousand dollars in eighteen sixty as a banker. So I think he thought himself much less successful as a pepper sauce manufacturer than as a banker. But his children uh, realized that they could build on the foundation that he established, and so. It took them a long time, but by the eve of World War One, you can see it becoming a household word in the U.S. After World War II, it really comes into its own as a worldwide product. That's when we first decided to advertise outside the U.S. in non-English languages for the first time. And so if you look at a place like Japan, uh, you know, in theory, there should have been no Tabasco sauce in Japan at the end of 1945 because we'd been at war with them and by the 1960s they're becoming one of our biggest customers and by the 80s and 90s they are our biggest customer uh just importing millions of bottles per per year uh and so uh it took a long time to grow to the status that it has now but it's all because of edmund in the mid to late 19th century. 
It really is interesting. You know, we're, we're sitting there, I'm watching to- Toxic nod his head, and you talk about a guy getting into something he didn't know anything about. It, it's kind of a common theme among entrepreneurs. And, uh, I, had, that, I had no <clears throat> clue at all. Absolutely no clue at all. I always say, Bob, and you can, not to compare with my greatest, <clears throat> they'll probably attest to this too, my greatest God-given talent is being hard-headed. <laughs> kind of hard to take no for an answer. And that's about, honestly, that's about it. Well, uh, Shane didn't mention this, but I was reading about it earlier, uh, and we're looking at this filing cabinet full of all of his memoirs and such. Yes. He didn't, I don't think he even mentioned the Tabasco sauce in his memoirs, did he? No, he didn't. So, um, unfortunately, his Edmund's memoir is only about four pages long. <laughs> he wow. dictated it to his, his eldest daughter, Sadie, late in his life. And it was all about banking. It was all about how he got into banking and how um, his career as a, banking, uh, as a banker started as a bookkeeper. And then he became a general agent for the Bank of Louisiana, eventually became an independent banker. Doesn't mention peppers or Tabasco or sauce once. And, you know, if I could meet Edmund, if I could go back in time, you know, the questions I'd have for him were, how did you get the idea for pepper sauce? Where did you get the peppers? And where did you get the recipe? And I suppose where did you get the peppers would be the question I'd be most interested in. Because the fact of the matter is we don't know. Wow. Now, we used to say, oh, you know, Grandpa got them from this guy he met in the street in New Orleans who was named Gleason. And his first name was Friend because he was a... Quaker or something like that. The fact of the matter is we don't know any of that. Uh, hmm. There's no really interesting. primary source material from the times in which Edmund says this is where it came from. It's all after the fact. Maybe it's partly right. Maybe it's not right at all. We, we don't know. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, all of it. It really is. So can I, I would encourage people to to go to Google Earth and uh, and go to that. To, I think New Iberia is maybe a, a, a landmark there, but you can see Avery Island uh, and, and kind of understand what we're looking at. And there's actually it looks like a factory, and there are pepper fields, a, a road called yeah, Pepperfield Road, and, and yeah, then the Birds City. I've never been, but I've I've heard the gardens are very very garden, impressive. Yeah. A lot of people say that's yeah. their favorite favorite part. Wow! So yeah, let's, it's 170 acres of gardens. Wow! Yeah. So let's kind of steer this to something that's near and dear to our heart, and it, it it it's interesting that there's thought to be its own subspecies of white-tailed deer on the island. And uh, what mm-hmm. can you tell us about that? So there was a biologist named Miller. I think his name was Frank Miller in the 1920s, who did a study of the white-tailed deer on the island, and he determined that they were slightly different than white-tailed deer anywhere else, precisely because the island is so much like an island, you know? So once these deer get here, it's not that they can't leave, but it is it is kind of difficult because of all the, the barriers created by the wetlands around it. So you know, they would, they would interbreed here on the island and just sort of evolved into their own subspecies, which is called McElhenney eye. So it's McElhenney with an eye on the end of it. So They're it's actually, actually a, a recognized subspecies. Okay. Interesting. Hmm. And because the McElhenney's like EA have, 
have always been into natural science and conservation and hunting. Uh, there are four or five animal species named after them, usually with that that wow. suffix "macohenii." Like one's a shrimp species, a possum species, a shrimp species, uh, a bird species in South America, and this this white-tailed deer. Wow! Amazing. It, it, All of it. It, it. it really is. So I understand there's like thirty some odd subspecies of the white-tailed deer, and and what I wow. read about was that some that they thought that the hooves were a little larger, and that maybe that had to do with with the swampy area that they they <clears> lived <throat> in, and and there were some deer sent to Colorado at one time to be studied by some scientists there in Colorado, and that. That came back and said, "Yeah, there is something. The skulls were a little smaller, and their feet were a little larger." Was what I remember. I wonder how it compared to the key deer. Be interesting to see. I think they're bigger than the key bigger, deer. They're bigger than the key deer. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. You know, one great thing about working on Avery Island is that I see I see deer almost every day, uh, just driving around the island. Mm-hmm. So when I get here in the morning, especially, or in the winter, when it gets dark early, I go out to my car. And uh, and they're just all over the place because they're not actively hunted on the island itself. Wow! So uh, do- I don't know if they know that this is a safe place, but you see them grazing all over the place. So how do you keep the population within the carrying capacity? You know, with something contained like that. You know, I, there's no real barrier to 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 them leaving the oh, island okay. if they want, except for all that that water. But it is, it is possible. I mean, it is possible to leave the island. Uh, the same with the bear population. I mean, there's some evidence they, they come and go as they well, want. Well, you know, I didn't think about the it. The bear population may be your That's answer. That's exactly what I was going to mm-hmm. say. They may have natural mortality that keeps it in check. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, have oh, cat- you mean that, like, calls the hide and the uh, the, the, the um, herd and that sort of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you got to yeah, there have. Are, there are bear. There, there are coyotes. There are coyotes. That'll, that'll knock it down. That'll We've do had it. some places yeah. that... Uh, Auburn did that study at Bent Creek where they were losing 70% of their phones to coyotes too. So you've got a balance there. Otherwise, there's no way they wouldn't overpopulate. So I bet you the natural mortality of predators, if you've got coyotes and bears, they're probably taking care of a big degree of it. There are also uh, mm-hmm. large bird species here. Uh, on rare occasion, we see bald eagles. There are a lot of, there are a lot of bald eagles just east of here around St. Around rather Morgan City, Louisiana, mm-hmm. um, but we do have a lot of hawks around here, and and they've been known to uh, to you know hunt on newly born animals, even some of the farm animals here on the island. Uh, they've been known to go after. Interesting stuff. Um, I feel like we probably should have touched on this earlier, but. Um, a lot of our listeners may not know a whole lot about the, you know, the, the people in this area. Um, can you briefly describe the whole Acadian movement uh, into your area and, and talk about, I'd also like to hear more about, you know, do people still speak French or is that slowly going away? You know, let's get into some of that fun stuff. Yeah. So my, my, You know, as a professional historian, in my free time, I mainly write about Cajun and Creole history because I I call myself a Cajun, even though there's nothing particularly Cajun about me. Um, But my grandparents on my father's side of the family, because I mentioned my mom's family from Mississippi. uh, Somehow she met this Cajun guy and married him. Uh, But 
you know, he's from Opelousas, Louisiana. My uh, grandparents on that side of the family spoke French. My great grandparents spoke French, maybe some of them only French. And uh, I've written a lot about this. So, you know, the, the Cajuns ancestors came from Southwest France in the Loire Valley region. They settled in Canada where they were fur trappers and fishermen. And, uh, the British captured that area and renamed it. It was Acadia or Acadie in French. They call it Nova Scotia and eventually uh, kicked out the Acadians because they were French Catholic and they didn't want them there. So, uh, of those 15,000 or so Acadians who were kicked out, about 3,000 made their way to Louisiana. It took them 10 years to get here. Louisiana was a Spanish colony at the time, not even a French colony. And uh, and so they settled here along Bayou Teche and along some other bayous and the Mississippi River and uh, intermarried with the other Frenchmen who were already here. And you had Germans here. You would eventually have Spaniards here and other ethnic groups. And so Cajuns, the Cajuns who exist today, even though the word Cajun comes from the word Acadian, um, there's really no such thing as a, as a Cajun who's of pure Acadian ancestry. It's, it's a mixture. But it was that mixture that made them the Cajuns in the first place. So um, the interesting thing or the odd thing is that Cajun pride seems to be higher than ever. Uh, and yet the number speaking French seems to be increasingly lower. So it looks like the mass of average ordinary Cajun people, on the one hand, uh, proud as ever, uh, or prouder than ever, but seem to have decided that that you don't have to speak French in order to be um, in order to be Cajun. Um, there are still people here who speak French. Usually they're older people. On rare occasion, you'll see uh, a newspaper article that, you know, oh, uh, Mrs. Uh, uh, So-and-so, you know, Boudreaux or whatever is in this uh, retirement home, and she's the only one left there who speaks only French. That That is extremely rare now to find someone who hmm. speaks only French. I'm not even sure there, there are any left. I mean, certainly in the 1990s there were, but... Um, you know, uh, here on Avery Island, we're, we're in a rural area. More people speak French in rural areas than metropolitan. Um, offhand, I can, I can only think of one person here on the island who speaks, who speaks French. Um, and he's, he's a black Creole. He's, um, so a Creole, I study Creoles also. Creole just means it has nothing to do with skin color. A lot of people think it does. Uh, you can be black, you can be white, you can be multiracial and be a Creole. It simply means you're a South Louisianian of French-speaking Catholic heritage. Uh, what's confusing about that is that technically that means that Cajuns are a type of Creole. Uh, most Cajuns don't go around thinking of themselves as being a type of Creole. Um, but... Uh, it's, it's a new way of looking at Cajuns that has be, is becoming more and more popular because, I mean, technically they do qualify. They're South Louisianians of French-speaking Roman Catholic heritage. So they would be a subset of the larger Creole group, you know? So you've got black Creoles, white Creoles, mixed-race Creoles. You've got Creoles are, you know, part 
uh, African heritage, part uh, European heritage, part Native American heritage. Um, uh, you've even got, I've, I've seen the phrase German Creole. There's a cookbook, uh, uh, an Italian Creole cookbook from New Orleans. Um, there are all sorts of varieties of, of Creoles. And, um, and so the, the, I write a lot about that. Yeah. But unfortunately, yeah, the numbers of French speakers, early 20th century, the, the mass of people in South Louisiana, average ordinary people, no matter how they identified, would have spoken French as their first language. Um, and increasingly, uh, it's harder to find. Okay. Well, that's that's interesting how that works. I, I guess the easier it is to be exposed to the rest of the world, like, you know, these cell phones and yep. uh, yeah. it's just easier exactly. to travel now. Um, you know, we're losing some of, you know, a lot of those traditions. Mm-hmm. But, uh, we can what? see television, television and even radio coming into this area. Although you did have some local French language programming, you know, you're seeing a lot of stuff from Hollywood and New York City where uh, where people speak English, you know, so that that was a big Americanizing influence in itself was just radio, TV, and and even movies. Yeah, you know? just keep that good food and and keep those traditions. It it doesn't have oh, to yeah. be French. <laughs> Lanny, uh, did you have a question? Yeah, I mean it's in relation. You know, we've kind of talked about the family and the island and everything else and the hot sauce, but where'd the name Tabasco come from? That's a good question. So there is a. Uh, a state in Mexico called Tabasco. It's right below Veracruz. It's on the Gulf of Mexico. And there was a lot of ocean going trade, you know, uh, through the Gulf of Mexico between the Tabasco region of Mexico and the port of New Orleans, which, you know, for much of the 19th century was the second largest port in the Mm -hmm. U S after New York city. And uh, a lot of what was being imported from Tabasco, Mexico, through the port of New Orleans was spice. And we know that because whenever a ship arrived in the port of New Orleans, it would advertise its goods and say, you know, you can you can buy this from me on the dock. You know, we're selling this and that and a bale of red pepper from Tabasco, Mexico. But not just red pepper, even things like allspice, which is not even a, a red pepper product. It's the berry of the myrtle tree, was being exported in huge quantities from Tabasco, Mexico, through New Orleans. And so I think when Edwin McLean needed a name for his product, and he wasn't really, he wasn't really thinking ahead. He's just saying, you know, what would appeal to someone along the Gulf Coast in New Orleans and South Louisiana? Well, people know that spice comes from Tabasco, Mexico, so that's what I'm going to call my product. Hmm. So, he made a pretty good choice. Yeah, he did. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Yep. yeah. Rolls off the tongue. Now, now that that's my theory. <laughs> he didn't actually say. Now, his eldest son, John Avery McElhenney, when he testified on the witness stand in an early trademark infringement suit in uh, 1911, said, "Father just liked the name, how the word sounded," but. I have to believe because there was so many, so much red pepper and other spice coming from that region that right. it was that that was part of the reason. So that's not where the pepper came from, though the red pepper that's used. We don't know. I, that's one of the questions I would like to ask him. I mean, in a strict sense, for all I know, he ordered it out of a, a mail order catalog, mm-hmm. you know, which they did have back then. The story is often that there was this this soldier named Gleason, friend Gleason, who was either in the Mexican-American War from 1846 to 48, 
or the Civil War, you know, 1861 to 65. Either story, uh, no matter which one you uh, look at, he fled to Mexico. He he remained in Mexico uh, rather than come back to the U.S. In the case of the Civil War soldier, it's because he didn't want to surrender to the North. Changed his mind, came back through the port of New Orleans, ran into Edmund in the street and said, hey, here's some peppers from Mexico. Try them. I think you'll like them. Edmund liked them so much that he saved some of them, extracted the seeds, and from that small quantity of seeds, all the Tabasco pepper we grow today uh, is a descendant. Wow, that's cool. That really, when you think yeah. about seeds, we're yeah. really into seeds yeah, that's around the, here. That's the, yeah, it's uh, got some right there. And so that, that, that's a fascinating story. Bottom line is a brand and then a product is, the name is what you make it. Right, no doubt about and it. And it really wasn't a matter of where he got it from. Mm-hmm. It's what he did, his actions, and especially above all the product. Mm. So yeah. few, there's a few that have really spanned time and have been timeless in that period. There's very few, uh, very few that have been that uh, deep and consistent as this one is. Mm, Very, very few. Yeah. I mean, there's some brands that have been around that are iconic, but a lot of them have changed a lot. A lot of them have, you know, pushed their – you know, parent main product into a separate category or something like that. All their stuff stays true. They're just, they're great. Um, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in, in sticking to the logic of things and they're boy, they've done a brilliant job with this over time. I was curious of the history. So you said he died in 49. So how many kids did he have? Well, that, that was Edward Avery McElhenney, the son of the inventor. Right. 49. He had, uh, three daughters, and so uh, they all had children. So the strange thing is today, there are only maybe four or five McElhenney's with the last name McElhenney. That being said, there are a lot of McElhenney's. It's right. just there were more more uh, girls than boys born. It's the same thing with their Avery cousins here on the island. There are, uh, I only know maybe one or two Averys with the last name Avery, but there are a lot of Averys right. for the same reason. They, they just had more women than men. So... Um, and incidentally, so the McElhenney's are Avery's. They they are one branch of the larger Avery family, but it's just that McElhenney branch that makes Tabasco sauce. How about that? Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm just curious if you look back at the, roughly speaking, generations. So you'd have, you're on your fifth generation, I guess, of family? Uh, there are a number of fifth generation uh, people who have uh, now moved into the company and, and are on the board or – we only have three full-time families. That's, 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 let me tell you right there. That's as amazing as anything. And the, all this other stuff, although I got a few comments about some of this um, in the big picture part of it. That is amazing testament to the fiber of a family and the groundwork laid down. And, um, but it is sixth generation now. They do. I think there's one that's family incredible. member that's sixth. I mean, yeah. I know no family's perfect, and you know, there's some people can't get along, whatever. But I'm telling you, that is even more rare than most of the other stuff we've talked about. And so, I have listened to so many inspiring things today, just listening to them and the history and who started this and how he handled himself. And um, so, you know, what I wanted to point out that because it has really inspired me to listen to the story. Uh, didn't know much much of this. I've heard a little of it, but uh, if it just occurred to me, you know, and I just want to be able to call it out that uh, for me, you know, 
at the end of my run, if, if, you know, obviously, uh, husband, father, friend, you know, servant leader, um, entrepreneur that came up with this crazy mossy oak thing, all those things would mean a lot to be remembered by, but I listened to you, how you referred to him so many times. If I, I got lucky enough for them to throw out naturalist in my name to be remembered as a naturalist. <laughs> I'm so identified with that. And, you know, so that just inspires me. You know, the things that I really love, if you, you know, if you, if you leave me alone and don't pull on me to come do a podcast or whatever, <laughs> sit in an office or something, I'm going to be outdoors. I'm going to be planting yep. my garden or mowing my yard or growing trees or doing something on the farms and stuff. That's what I Dancing love in, in the life. daisies. Yeah. And so hopefully one day, my point in saying this, I hope to be remembered as a naturalist and it still goes full circle to what the group we're talking about. I think everybody should be inspired by this story because I guarantee you, if this man was alive today, he would say, you don't have to have my resources or my whatever wisdom or my whatever, you know, pioneer, pioneering spirit. Anybody can do it in their own way, in their own little piece of ground, wherever that is. He would, you know, so the work that he did for wildlife, I think would be only second would have to be second to his inspiration of so many others to become conservationists. That's what we're after here too. Mm -hmm. So this story, this story inspires me so much to touch people in even a different and better way than we are today about, you know, leaving your mark in life as a naturalist in your own way, not not measured against me or him or others or whatever that might be known or not known, but in your own way, what a gift that would be for folks. I guarantee you, look, whether he's recognized, I know he's recognized a lot more now through here. Dudley is a great, great naturalist. Oh, wow. And I promise you, we all are in here because we love it. But you're looking at one <laughs> he right just can't here. call a turkey. He's straight across from me on the computer screen. Well, he is know, a great and He's a naturalist, not a turkey yeah. hunter. <laughs> so so he should he should take the same inspiration as me because that's kind of our kindred spirit, not just the hunting history of stuff, but we uh, they kid and call us oak nerds. And our our yeah. thing is trees. But uh, I just wanted to call that out for everybody. Let this man be an uh, inspiration to everyone, because it is to me. And the things that are happening today that he he had no idea. He literally planted a seed to happen, you know, a hundred and something years ago. Hmm. Amazing. Just amazing. Well, and they're they're blessed to have you, Shane, to spread dig, the word. Absolutely. Find all the yep. old history yep. and, and share it with everybody. I tell you the Thank first. you. And you know, one thing I left out was that EA was in Ducks Unlimited before it was even called Ducks Unlimited. It was like called More Game Wildfowl in America or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it became Ducks Unlimited while he was there. And he he uh, sponsored a contest. Uh, it was a sort of contest where there could be a, a great many uh, people who would win. Uh, and the prize was that he would send you a specimen of a, a plant that grew abundantly here in South Louisiana, but that ducks were attracted to so that you could, you could start your own uh, wildfowl refuge wherever in the country you were, if you could get this plant to grow in a little uh, uh, marshy little area somewhere. So that, that's kind of a good example of how he encouraged other people just average ordinary people to be conservationists bobby wanted to know would they still send him some of those plants <laughs> yeah we need some of that <laughs> if up he here. were to mail a letter would they still send him some uh, 
I don't remember what the plants were. I, we no, that's what I'd be interested in. Yeah, let's see if we can figure <laughs> Shane, let's see if we can figure that it's out. A work right up our alley, yeah. <laughs> that's your homework. Yeah. If it's a really good right. waterfowl plant, I'm probably more interested in just hoarding it for myself than yeah. selling it to anybody. Well, <laughs> he true. sounds like such a fascinating guy. Oh, oh I'm unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, yeah. let's face it, uh, he probably didn't even think of himself that way, but he was clearly a visionary. Yeah. Yeah, in his know? memoirs, he didn't even talk about it. It's, it was so funny. But, yep. yeah. um, that's a dying uh, thing. Well, well people the one, keeping records. Oh, yeah. But remember, the one thing I pointed out a minute ago, a lot of this might not have mattered, and it's probably his greatest accomplishment was the family that he – sure you know, mm-hmm. fostered or had or grew or whatever that the fiber of that family took what all this very, very, very cool pioneering visionary man did. And then if it hadn't have been for the fiber of the family, it probably would have washed away or not been as near as, but today because of them and their success and the brand and now him there, we can all connect it as very cool, mm-hmm. but his family's his greatest legacy. It sounds like to me. Sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. Shane, look, uh, is there anything else you want to point out? Because we're fixing this thing is about to get off the rails. We're going to turn it over to Dudley and let him ask you. So we call them rapid fires, and there, there's no telling All where right. this is going to go. But I want to give you a chance to make sure you say everything you wanted to say. Well, I've written about this before, is that, uh, you know, being a hunter conservationist, EA at one time really uh, became a target for purists, people who did not believe in, in hunting, um, naturalist who, who did not believe in hunting, and they they really went out of their way to excoriate him in the in the national media, and this is because he he had donated or or been uh, instrumental in convincing others to donate uh, thousands thousands of acres to the state of Louisiana as wildfowl protection land. But he ended up with a large swath of land that he could not afford, but that was for sale. Uh, couldn't find any benefactor to, to, to pull their resources with him to, to buy it. So he came up with this idea that he would uh, make it into a, a, a hunting club for three months out of the year. But the other nine months out of the year, it would be off limits to hunters and the money earned through the, the hunting subscriptions would be used to hire a game wardens to keep the, um, hmm. the, um, oh, I forgot the word now. I used it just a minute ago. Poachers. The, um, yeah. The cages. Poachers out. <laughs> All the riffraff. <laughs> uh, excuse me. I what don't know. Yeah. The what happened yeah. was, um, the, the purist, uh, did not like the idea of there being any hunting on this land, even if the money was going to be used, for the protection of the wildfowl and was closely uh, monitored during the hunting season. So they really dragged him through the mud uh, and it kind of knocked him off his pedestal as one of the uh, great leaders of the American conservation movement. But he, he recovered, he kept going and, uh, and it really didn't do anything bad to his reputation in, in the long run because that became not because of him, but by coincidence, it became the Ducks Unlimited model. Yes, you know? exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let, look, we're going to put him back up on his pedestal. We're not going. That's, yeah. Uh, oh we we pro hunting so, around him. So, yeah. yeah there, there were others, but clearly, that I wrote that down as a saying that the 
for for all hunters, you know, it should be on t-shirts or whatever. He's like critters first, mm-hmm. you know, that's was his heart and his mentality, you know, and then we hunt around that as a way to preserve and manage and prosper the species. Uh, so, you know, what a great philosophy yeah. and one we do have today, <laughs> thank goodness, but that we could never have too much of. Uh, he certainly bad. spread it to the rest of the family because uh, Walter McElhenney, who was a brigadier general in the Marine Corps and who ran our company from 1949 when EA died to his own death in 1985, big that's, hunter went on. Yeah, that's the one I was wondering. That him? Gap, that was the one. Yeah, he. Yeah, that was the big one there. Uh, went on lots of safaris and and shikars, as they're called uh, in Asia, and. Uh, the thing is, he would never hunt an animal that was endangered. And in fact, he donated a lot of money to the World Wildlife Federation. Uh, he was on the board of this and that conservation group, donated money for the study of, uh, of whales, um, uh, was active in the effort to preserve the American alligator in the 1970s when it was on the, um, the uh, Danger species. threatened species list. Uh, which it's not anymore. And and so uh, you can see that going from one generation to another in the McElhenney family, even today. You know, the one question I wanted to ask, uh, I, I, looking at the, the Google Earth, I see the pepper fields. With all the deer down there, do they get in the pepper field? Do they eat those pepper plants? I bet not. There are, there are very tall fences surrounding them to, to keep them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, be interesting to see if they if it flavored the meat any particular oh, way. Give a little, a little Tabasco. A little, yeah, a little bit. Of, a little I'm bit in. <laughs> oh, so, so look, Shane, we're fixing to turn it over to to Dudley, and he, he's going to have. Uh, we've got a segment we call Rapid Fire. It's brought to you by Springfield Armory, and he's going to ask you some questions, and uh, hopefully, you'll enjoy this. Okay, Shane. So this is all in good fun. I I try to pair this with the person I'm interviewing. So I know you're from South Louisiana area. So that's, that's what this is going to be based on. Uh, so, all right. Uh, yes, no, neither, neither, both, in, both, anything like that is fine. And let's Pass. try, try to do this quickly. All right. So all are right. you ready? Yes. Oysters raw or any other way. Any other way. Music, Swamp Pop or Zydeco? Oh, Swamp Pop. I literally wrote the book on Swamp Pop. <laughs> That's what I asked. All right. Mardi Gras or Christmas? Oh, man. I would say Christmas. Shrimp or crawfish? Oh, that's another tough one. <laughs> uh, I would, I would say both, huh? shrimp, but, but uh, oh yeah, both. I didn't know I could say both. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what do you call it? Do you call it an alligator pear or a merleton? Merleton. Boudin or head cheese? What do you prefer? Boudin. All right. Best boudin in your area. Is it Billy's or is it at the best stop? Uh, I would say best stop. I hear a lot about Billy's that's good, but I've only been to the best stop. All right. I heard everybody argues that down there. All right. Sazerac or a Vucare? Um, I don't drink, so I don't know. So neither. <laughs> Ghost stories. Neither. Ghost stories. Do you believe them or not? Not, but everybody else seems to. 
<laughs> Avery Island, is there a history of long-tailed cats there? Ooh. Yes or no? No, because all of the cats I've seen look like they almost have no tail at all. So Okay. Mm-hmm. Redfish, oh, or, yeah. redfish or trout? Oh, redfish. All right. Last but not least. Blackened. Mm. Mm. Po' boy or muff? Po' boy. Hey, no, good job. What is a muff? I had boudin. Oh, I, I had boudin for lunch today. So you got, uh, you got Bobby's attention with that. Man, yeah, that sounds good. Well, you know, Dudley worked really hard on those questions for you. I gotta try some of this scorpion sauce. No, does that like melt your face? I don't know. It looks like yeah. It like uh, I, I find like three drops for a bowl of gumbo is enough. You know? Oh, really? On the scorpion. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But you know, if you put a drop on your finger and you just put it in your mouth, oh, it's like after a while, it feels like you were shot with Novocaine. You know. Mm. <laughs> Have you ever put potato salad in your gumbo? Oh yeah. Okay. So I've, I've I live in New Iberia, Louisiana, right up the road from um, Avery Island. That's a big thing right here. Okay. But if you go somewhere else, they don't do that. And it, I like yeah, it. I rice like or it. potato like salad it. in the gumbo, and it's the the cheaper the potato salad, the no better. better. You know, just it is. Yeah. The sad thing is I'm type two diabetic, so I can't have rice anymore, you know, and it's just like Mm. so I I eat gumbo without rice and I miss it. But Mm. I I can have a little bit of potato salad, so I put it in there and it's it's really good, whoever invented that. (laughs) Before we let you go, Shane, we've uh we like to ask you a trivia question and uh our producer Richie will ask you the question, but if you get this question right, the question has been designed just for you. If you get it right, right, one of our listeners wins a prize. And this week, guys, it's a pair of Leopold sunglasses. What? Oh, my gosh. I, I mean, this is a great prize. Did I, did I, I s- want to play. Oh, well, yeah. It, it, <laughs> I, I sent that ra- I sent a rating in. <laughs> well, so if you uh, go leave us a uh, review, Landon's got a pair I, there. The best ones I've ever owned, no doubt about it. They're great glasses. Un- so this is a pair of switchbacks. Hmm. And uh, so, look, if you get this right, they went. Shane, if you get it wrong, you have to supply them a lifetime's worth of Tabasco sauce. So. <laughs> oh, I see it. How it is. <laughs> <laughs> so can I, can, I, can I use, like, chat GPT to yeah. look up the answer? Oh, well, yeah, we'll give you a – you know, you can phone a friend if you need <laughs> yeah. to. But I, no. I, I think oh, it's so. going to be in your wheelhouse. Okay. All right, here. So uh, Yoga Skipper is the, who we're playing for, for here. Oh, okay. His That's review is – very informative and entertaining. I enjoy listening to the podcast every week and learning something new from each episode. Nice. Again, I think Bobby wrote that. Yeah. That yoga, sounds, yoga skipper. What yeah. does that mean? He skips yoga? I don't know. I don't know. He maybe he, leads, he, he, he may, does yoga on a boat. Yeah. But he may, he may, lead, he may be, be the leader. You know, yeah. Skipper's yeah. the leader. Yeah. You know? yeah. All right. That's yeah. right. There you go. So here's the question. What is the state tree of Louisiana? Oh, the state tree of Louisiana? Yes. It's the uh, bald cypress, a.k.a. red cypress. All right. There we go. Yeah, yeah. We nailed that one. Well, and, and I, look, I, I figured you would. That's, re- that's really good. There was some confusion that we you might say magnolia. No, that's all. Yeah, I I, I, as I was saying, and I was thinking, wait, is, that's is all- that it? But I, I'm, I'm sure it's cypress. Uh, maybe it holds the spot with the Magnolia, but Mississippi must have the Magnolia. We do. Correct. We are the Magnolia yeah. state. Yeah. The and then state, y'all yeah. state flower, I think, is the Magnolia. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. What's uh, no long Try to trip him up, Bobby. Well, you know, he doesn't look like he would easily trip up. No, right? he doesn't. Uh, I, 
yeah, I've written about uh, a lot about Cyprus, so yeah, it's a magnificent creation. It I really love is. a Cyprus tree. They're so, so beautiful. So bugs don't. I mean, you don't have to worry about termites or anything getting in Cyprus. Is that right? Uh, just those dreaded uh, bumblebees. Yeah, whatever. Carp- my, house, bees. my house is built out of Cypress. Mm. Yep. So you do have to worry about carpenter bees. That's, That's it, though, but not the holds rest up. of the yep. Really well. Uh, hold on. He's going to correct us on something. Please. Who, me? Oh, I thought you were going to correct us on something. No, no, no. I was just going to say it holds up great against humidity. And oh, it does. Yes. yes. So it's perfect for this area. And then there was that phase where that pecky cypress was so popular. Oh, it's still and it, cool it went now. for like $10 a board foot, you know, back in the 80s and stuff. It still would be like hen's teeth to get some. You can't hardly get it now. <clears throat> Do you know what, what creates that? Is it just an anomaly or certain species or certain parts of the tree? What creates that? You know, I've got a few boards in places that it just showed up in the boards, you know, randomly. My... Uh, you mean what makes it impervious to? Well, no, what no, makes it picky with those holes in it cypress. like that? Yeah, I you remember the? Worm. Oh no, I don't. I Wormwood, don't I guess I they know. call it. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was a worm. We're gonna make that and ask Dudley uh, for a future podcast. How about yeah, that? yeah, let's do that. Find that Put out. Put that on your that's things sure. to do list, there, Dud. So, guys, looking around the table, and and I'll even look at you, Shane. What what did we learn? There's a there's a lot to learn here about the McElhaney family. Well, I'm gonna go back that, to follow that. your heart. Watch, look what look what this guy created. Yeah. just following his heart. Yeah, you know, employ yourself with your hobbies. Yes. do what you love, and and good things will happen. Spend your time appropriately. There you go. So yeah, but I mean, he was so tuned in to Mother Earth, and look what happened as yeah. a result. Well, and I'll tell you the main thing, and preparing for this, that I came away with is what a difference one man can make. Oh, yeah. He's a visionary for yeah, sure. Yeah, um, This is totally random and off subject. But pro- you, to be expected. If yes. you haven't tried the the Tabasco brand Shirasha, oh. it will change your life. Have you had the Tabasco Bloody Mary mix? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's delicious, yeah, it's, too. It's great. That's, that's, they're they're uh, so good. I talked yeah. about logic, but the quality, they are so not careful only about what it, they let their brand name on. Not only does it taste superior, it doesn't have preservatives like all the others. Boom. And I'm a weird weirdo. You are a weirdo. There's no I'll doubt I'll bet about you that. their <laughs> standards for brand participation are so stringent and exacting because uh, that's one reason why it's so iconic after all these years because when you see that and you try it, it's – you can just count on it. Yeah. Every time. Yep. Well, so, it's sure iconic. I think the first time I remember seeing this was in an MRE. One, one other one question about and, the brand. This is a this is a business. I'm a nerd about brands. How many different iterations of the brand has there been since this little bottle we're looking at now? Or I mean, because I know that the uh, I saw the I history of Coca Cola's one time, and they had nobody ever knew they changed the. I think he's talking logo, about the label. And it's like yeah. forty seven times or some crazy number. That it has slowly been morphed. changed and morphed, you know, and evolved slowly. But I wonder, if from the very first original all time, how many times they've altered in any form. Do you know that answer? The old time label uh, was from 1868 to 1927, and in 27 we revamped the whole bottle. We revamped the label, and we switched also from cork top to screw top bottles that year with the octagonal cap. And so, 
wow. sometimes we get asked by filmmakers, they'll say, oh, look, we're making a film and it's it's in World War II. What did a Tabasco bottle look in, like in World War II? And I tell them, you can use a bottle off the shelf, you know, a modern bottle straight off the store shelf because the, the differences would be microscopic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, wow. One example of a very small change uh, after 1927 was that for a lot of the mid-20th century, we put the three ingredients in fine print along the bottom of the diamond right, logo. Right. And at some point we stopped doing that. So it's, it's little microscopic changes like that. And we switched new Iberia to Avery Island in 1991. Hmm. How about that? That's amazing. That's amazing. One main ship. That is yeah. very Of course, we're rare. not comparison to that. We've sure. had one main ship. Sure. That's it too. So, <laughs> I mean, that's great, great brands. They're just so consistent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's crazy. I bet they got a lot of these little bottles laying around. But I you know, even do. this, even this one, he Wait. said they back in. What'd you say the change was in the twenties? Nineteen twenty-seven. Yeah, the <laughs> octagonal top and all. You're describing this little bottle I have in front of me right now. You know, is the same as like in here. It is a hundred years. The later. Great Depression, even. Yeah, hundred years later. Unbelievable! Wow. Yeah, we we came out with a mini Tabasco bottle in eighteen ninety-four, but it was cork top, and then we stopped for about a half century reintroduced it in 1950 with the screw top and have never stopped because they're it, yeah. it you know we sell a lot of the miniatures but we also give a lot of them away to tourists and and whomever the first place i ever saw this was my dad's mres we would open them up and you'd find these little bottles yeah. in them like wow. they had cigarettes in them too but nonetheless <laughs> <laughs> hey, your dad knew how to live yeah. still does enjoying yeah. it so well, hey Shane, look, we have enjoyed having you on. Amazing, here. yeah, we really great have. Story. Just, I greatly appreciate this, the vigor you have for your job, and well, thank uh, you, your step in life and all. You can just tell you get just as soon as you start talking, you get an energy that you how much you love what you do, and that's such a gift. But thanks for sharing it with us. Oh yeah, yeah, anytime. All right, Shane. So I'm going to send you a, a companion shirt. It's something that we've relaunched. It's uh, it's some casual wear. You can go to mossyoak.com. You'll see an icon for companions up there at the top. Click on it. It's some just fantastic casual wear. We're so proud of it. So I'm going to send you a shirt. Oh, excellent, excellent. Yeah, I'm just trying to make sure we wrap it up and, and cover all that yoga. Is it Yoga Shipper? Yoga Skipper? Skipper. Yoga Yoga Skipper. Make sure you get in touch with me. You can get in touch with us at gamekeepers at mossyoak.com. We'll get you these Leopold glasses. Uh, If Lanny doesn't steal them, we'll get those sent to you. I I I didn't know those were in the stash. Yeah, they're they're hidden. So, guys, I've enjoyed this one. We've learned a lot. Shane, we really appreciate you being here. So entertaining and enlightening. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. What a great American brand And it looks story. like what yeah. a historian would look like. It's the beard. It's the beard. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right, guys. Thank you. Uh, I'm looking around, everybody. We've, this has been a good one. Dudley, why don't you uh, say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Richie. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine and don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.